Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and it really is a great thrill for me to see all of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium this evening. Uh, I just want to remind you, in case you have not already had a chance to see it on view right now, is our newest exhibition, Chinese American Exclusion, Inclusion. It's a wonderful show that tells the history of Chinese in America, beginning with the tea uh, thrown overboard in Boston Harbor, which of course was Chinese. So I know you won't want to miss it. Do return during regular museum hours to see that show. Uh, I also want to encourage anyone who's here this evening who is not yet a member of the New York Historical Society to join uh, members, support all of the work that we do at this great institution, including programs like the splendid one this evening. Tonight's program, Founder's Son, A Life of Abraham Lincoln, is a part of our Carl Mangus series in American history. I would like to thank Mr. Mangus for his great support. Carl is here this evening with his wife, Cordelia, and I would also like to thank him for all the great work that he does as a trustee on behalf of our institution. Thank you, Carl and Cordelia. I would also like to uh, welcome and recognize the former chair of our board and current chair of our executive committee, Mr. Roger Hertog, and our great trustee and uh, wonderful scholar, Mr. Lewis Lerman, and thank both of them for all that they do on our behalf. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. We will ask audience members to line up to my left and to my right in the aisles. We ask that you do that so that everyone in the room can hear your question and so that your question will also be audible on our podcasts for those who listen to these programs in that way. Following the program, there will be a book signing. Uh, the book uh, by Mr. Brookheiser is available in our museum store, and he will be signing it uh, after the program. We are absolutely thrilled to... Welcome back, Richard Brookheiser, to the New York Historical Society. As you know, he is a renowned historian, author, senior editor of National Review, as well as a columnist for American history. In 2004, Mr. Brookheiser served as historian curator for our uh, really spectacular and important and pathbreaking for this institution exhibition on Alexander Hamilton, the man who made modern America. Uh, we also uh, want to recognize Mr. Brookheiser's receipt of the National Humanities Medal. He's, of course, written numerous books on revolutionary America, including biographies on George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and James Madison. His most recent book, which was released just last week, is Founder's Son, A Life of Abraham Lincoln, and it is already getting wonderful reviews. Uh, as always, I'd like to ask, um, before I invite Mr. Brookheiser to the stage, that you make sure that anything that makes noise like a cell phone is switched off. And now, please do join me in welcoming Richard Brookheiser to the stage. It's always a pleasure and an honor to be here at the Historical Society. I just want to thank a few people who are in the room. Uh, my publicist from BASIC, Cassie Nelson, BASIC book is, Books has done a terrific job with this book. It's handsome. Uh, they're really publishing it well. I couldn't be happier. 
Uh, Roger Hertog, I'll embarrass him again. He's done so much for history uh, in this city, and he particularly was very generous supporting the publicity of this book, very grateful. Uh, Lou Lehrman, whom I've known uh, since 1982, uh, he gave me a crucial early advice when I was trying to find my way through the land of Lincoln. Uh, there have been 15,000 books published on Lincoln, um, I guess now 15,001. Uh, so, so one does need help, and, and Lou was uh, uh, very generous with it. And, um, and also, uh, my friend and agent for 20 years, Michael Carlisle. Uh, this is our 10th book together. Uh, we started with Washington, now we're with Lincoln. Andrew Johnson, next. Uh, we'll, we'll try to do better than that. Uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, was preoccupied with the Founding Fathers uh, from 1854 when the Missouri Compromise was repealed and he was roused, as he put it, as he'd never been before, all the way through Appomattox and the end of the Civil War and his life. Uh, his most famous expression of his devotion to the founders was in 1863 in the Gettysburg Address, which he began with four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty. But three years before that, uh, at another great speech here in New York at Cooper Union, February 1860, he kicked off his presidential campaign. He referred to the founders again. As our fathers marked slavery, so let it be again marked, as an evil not to be extended. Let us speak as they spoke and act as they acted upon it. And six years before that, in the speech that kicked off his mature political career in Peoria in October 1854, again, he references the Founding Fathers. Our Republican robe is soiled and trailed in the dust. Let us turn and wash it white in the spirit of the revolution. Let us return slavery to the position our fathers gave it. And these examples can be multiplied dozens of times. Uh, Lincoln looks to the founding fathers for inspiration. He looks to them for guidance, and he uses them to persuade and lead his fellow Americans. And tonight, I want to briefly look at where that interest came from, how it arose, uh, what the founding fathers gave him, what he looked for from them. I think the three most important ones to him throughout his life were George Washington, Thomas Paine, and Thomas Jefferson. But I also want to touch on two other fathers, uh, Lincoln's own actual father, Thomas Lincoln, and then finally, towards the end of his life, God the Father. Uh, I believe that some of Lincoln's in interest in the founding fathers arises from his dissatisfaction with his own father and some of his turn towards God the Father at the end of his life is because even the Founding Fathers will be no longer quite enough for him. So um, to begin with Thomas Lincoln, uh, he was born in Virginia, 1778. 
He moved to Kentucky. Uh, there he had his family, uh, daughter Sarah, son Abraham, uh, and a little boy Thomas who only lived for three days. Uh, Thomas Lincoln was a subsistence farmer and a carpenter all his life. And there was a fashion in the uh, mid-20th century to depict him as a, an almost Snopesian ne'er-do-well. But I think historians and biographers have revised that. Uh, Thomas Lincoln uh, never went broke. Uh, he never left bad debts. Uh, he had some problem with land titles in Kentucky, but everybody did. The surveying in that state w was just a nightmare. That's one of the reasons the Lincolns moved to Indiana and then to Illinois. Uh, Thomas Lincoln was on several juries, which was a sign of respectability. And he was also a trustee of a Baptist church that he and his wife belonged to. He sent his children uh, to little one-room schools on several occasions. Now, this wasn't for a long time. If, if you add up all the time that Abraham Lincoln spent in school, it adds up to a year. Uh, but his father did send him. He wanted him to learn how to read, to write, and how to do simple mathematics up to the level of cross-multiplication. These were useful skills, and he wanted his son to have them. But father and son never truly got along. Uh, they, they were not alike. They inhabited different mental worlds. Uh, Thomas Lincoln wanted his son to read, but he could not understand Abraham's passion for reading. Uh, for Abraham Lincoln, reading was both an escape and also an explanation of the world. It was a way to have an alternative life and to understand better the life you were living. And this was something that was just uh, beyond Thomas Lincoln's ken. Uh, when, when Lincoln was running for president, he, he wrote a campaign autobiography, and in it he said that his father never learned more than to bunglingly write his own name. There's a lot of scorn in that word, bunglingly. Uh, I learned how to write. You could have learned how to write if you wanted to, but you never did. I think that's, that's the symbol of the um, distance between father and son. Now, there were, there were some things that Abraham did get from his father. Uh, his father was strong, and so was Abraham. And in the uh, frontier conditions in which they lived, this was very useful. It meant you wouldn't be bullied. When you moved into a new place and were hazed by the locals, had to do a challenge match with the local tough guy, uh, you could beat him or you could hold your own. And this happened both to Thomas and to Abraham. So that was one important resemblance. Another resemblance was that Thomas Lincoln was temperate. Uh, he was not a drinker. And in early 19th century America, this was almost unheard of. This was a country of alcoholics. Uh, the consumption of, of liquor that, that ordinary people performed is, is simply astonishing. And neither Thomas nor his son Abraham uh, drank. And maybe the most important resemblance is that Thomas Lincoln was a great storyteller. Uh, two of Abraham's cousins who lived with the Lincoln family, Dennis Hanks and John Hanks, they both testified to this. 
And uh, John Hanks said that uh, Thomas was as good a storyteller as Abraham. Dennis said that he was better. So uh, this must have been a quality that the son saw in his father and learned from. But Abraham uh, never acknowledged those resemblances, never mentioned them. Uh, when he was 21, uh, he left the nest, uh, went off to live on his own. Uh, there are some rather strained letters between him and his father. Uh, the father dies in 1851. Uh, Abraham named a horse after him, Old Tom, and he named one of his sons. Uh, ten years later, uh, when he's about to leave for Washington to be inaugurated, he visits his uh, father's grave and he notes that there's no stone on it, no monument, and he says he'll have, to, he'll have to arrange for one to be put up. He never did. So that was the relationship between this father and this son. None of us ever gets everything we want from our parents. It's not possible. But especially when there's a great gap between our expectations and what they give us, then we look for substitutes. We look for surrogates. And for a young man in early 19th century America, the handiest substitutes were the founding fathers, the men of the generation just past, who'd won the revolution, who'd written the Constitution. And many of these men were still active when Lincoln was a little boy growing up. Uh, Thomas Jefferson had one month still in the White House after Abraham was born. Uh, he was followed by eight years of James Madison, who was followed by eight years of James Monroe, the last founder president. But by the time Abraham Lincoln is in his 20s, in the 1830s, the very last of the founding fathers are dying off. Um, none of them uh, ever went to Indiana or Illinois. Uh, Lincoln never went to the places where they lived. So the only way he could encounter them was in books. And the first founder he encountered, the first important founder he encountered in a book was George Washington. And he met him in Parson Weems's Life of George Washington. This was one of the first biographies of Washington that was published. Weems knew Washington very slightly. Uh, he boasted that he was the uh, parson of Mount Vernon Parish. Well, there is no such parish, and Weems was not the uh, rector of it. But um, he claimed that connection, and he, uh, he was an itinerant book dealer as well as a clergyman, and he realized that a biography of Washington would be a good seller. So Washington dies in 1799. Weems comes out with his biography in 1800. Uh, he makes some changes to it, and it's the 1808 version that uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, would read. And Weems's biography, it's still in print. You can still, you know, you can still buy it on Amazon. Uh, and we still remember stories from it. The writing is, the sentences are not good, but the paragraphs are great, and the stories are terrific. And the proof is that we still remember some of them. Uh, the most famous one is Young George and the Cherry Tree. Uh, his, his father gives him a hatchet. Uh, the little boy swings it around, and he accidentally chops the bark of a prized cherry tree. Uh, the father asks George, you know, how did this happen? Who did this? And George said, I can't tell a lie, Pa. You know I can't tell a lie. 
I did it. And, and then his father um, uh, thanks him for being honest. So story told, lesson learned. But that's not what impressed Abraham Lincoln about Weems's life of Washington. And we know this because Lincoln said what impressed him in 1861 when he was on his way to his first inauguration. Uh, he'd left Springfield, Illinois by train. He traveled uh, through seven states on his way to Washington, and he made appearances in six of them. He was showing the flag as the country was falling apart. And in February, uh, he came to Trenton, New Jersey, and he addressed the New Jersey State Senate. And there he talked about Weems's life of Washington and the Battle of Trenton. And that's what had most impressed him in Weems's book. He said, boy, even though I was, I suspected that there must have been something more important even than independence that those men fought for, something that was of value to all men in all times and places. And what Lincoln meant by that was liberty. And he's drawing a parallel between the revolution in 1776 and the troubles that he, he fears he is about to face in 1861. And if you go back and read Weems's Life of Washington, you see that that is exactly the lesson that Weems draws from the Battle of Trenton. He has dramatic descriptions of the crossing of the Delaware. Uh, he gives a lot of pages to the Hessians. He depicts them as sort of comic marauders with heavy, almost vaudevillian German accents. But then when they're captured, they're pitiable prisoners, and the Americans treat them well, so they change sides. Uh, there's a lot of event and bustle and local color. But the most important moment is after Weems gets the American army, Washington and his troops, across the Delaware, and they still have to march a few miles to Trenton. He introduces an allegorical figure, which is hovering over their line of march. And this is the figure of liberty. And he says, she has been driven from her home in Europe. Uh, America is her last refuge. But her enemies have followed her with soldiers and with armies. Who will defend her? Only this ragged band of men. He's presenting the Battle of Trenton as a struggle for liberty in the world. And the line that he gives to Washington before the battle begins is, all I ask of you men is that you remember what you are about to fight for. And in 1861, Abraham Lincoln remembered. And he told the New Jersey State Senate, you know how impressions that are made on us when we're boys stick with us uh, throughout our lives. Sorry, it was an all-male Senate, but that's, uh, that's who he was addressing. So George Washington for Lincoln was not a good boy. He was a great man, and a great man because he was a champion of liberty. The second founding father Lincoln encounters is in his 20s, and this is Thomas Paine. Paine was the great uh, journalist of the American Revolution. I, I would say one of the greatest journalists who, who ever lived. Uh, common sense was his great polemic in favor of American independence. Uh, the American Crisis, which he wrote on the eve of the Battle of Trenton, uh, has the greatest lead paragraph 
I would say, ever written in journalism. These are the times that try men's souls, and on, on it goes. And Lincoln read all of those works. They were reprinted, they were in print. But he also read Paine's book, The Age of Reason, which was his ferocious attack on revealed religion. Uh, Paine had written this in France. Uh, he'd gone over there for the French Revolution, been thrown in prison, and while he was in jail, he began the age of reason. And he's not an atheist. He says, I believe in one God and no more. But he argues that all religions are, are falsehoods that are set up to terrify and enslave men. And he makes some cracks at Islam and more at Judaism, but most of his fire is for Christianity. And he writes the sort of the ideal or the anti-ideal book for a Bible reading public. Uh, his technique is to take the Bible, to look for any inconsistency, any contradiction, any seeming inconsistency or contradiction, and to make relentless uh, fun of it. So uh, Lincoln uh, reads this book, and like many 20-year-olds, he thinks, this is great. This explains everything. Um, Jesus was a bastard. He was an illegitimate child. Who could believe in the virgin birth? Um, the, the accounts of the crucifixion all disagree with each other, on and on and on. And we know that uh, Lincoln was uh, so impressed with this, uh, there's a story that when he was a postmaster in his early 20s, this was one of the jobs he held when he was trying to figure out what he was going to do with his life, also to pick up a little money. And uh, postmasters in those days did not work out of post offices. Uh, they kept a desk in someone's store, and uh, that's where they sorted out the mail. That's where they read everybody else's newspapers. Uh, so Lincoln is at his desk, and he's telling all his pals about his new religious views. And he says, I've written a pamphlet myself. You know, and this is going to show that uh, Jesus was illegitimate and that the only test for religious belief should be reason. And the owner of the store, an older man named Samuel Hill, uh, took the manuscript from Lincoln and he put it in the stove. Because Lincoln was already interested in politics and uh, Mr. Hill knew that attacking Christianity was not the way to win votes in <laughs> Illinois in the early 1830s. So, and, and Lincoln learned over the next few years to be uh, discreet about his views and over time, uh, they would change. It's hard to track it because he became uh, uh, very closed mouth about a lot of his opinions. But one thing he learned lifelong from Paine was how to use humor to win serious arguments. You know, and whether you uh, like Paine or dislike him, whether you agree with him or not, you have to admit that Paine is brilliant at making serious points humorously. Um, his, uh, his attack on the virgin birth is that if any girl now were to say that she was made pregnant by a ghost and that an angel told her so, even if she swore to it, would she be believed? Now, and this is, there, there are lots of ways to think about the virgin birth, but this is a very um, aggressive way. It takes it very literally, very commonsensically, and it bores in uh, from that angle. And that's the kind of argument that when Lincoln came to master it, he would use 
again and again. He already knew how to be funny. He'd learned that from his father. He learned how to tell stories. But this is using humor to make serious points. And one of Lincoln's, uh, one of Lincoln's jokes he told over and over again when Democrats would accuse him and other Republicans of being race mixers. Because if you want to limit slavery, you must, uh, you must like black people, and therefore you must want to sleep with them, right? So Lincoln would say, uh, just because I don't want a black woman for a slave doesn't mean that I have to have her for a wife. I can just leave her alone. You know, and this, this, sometimes he would elaborate on this. Uh, it always got a laugh, but it also made a serious point. Because if you're leaving her alone, aren't you also leaving her to be free? So he's amusing his audience, but he's also getting them to think. And I think that is something that he retained from his youthful encounter with Thomas Paine. The third founding father who influenced him, and this influence begins to show itself in the 1850s, is Thomas Jefferson. And it's the Jefferson of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, Jefferson had a very long life. Uh, there were a lot of hesitations and second thoughts and retreats from some of his earlier opinions as he aged. But it was not that Jefferson that Lincoln invoked. It was the Jefferson who wrote the Declaration of Independence in 1776. And Lincoln would use this over and over as an expression of his principles and of the Republican Party's principles and of the principles that should guide Americans as they confronted the question of slavery's expansion. Uh, in 1854, he called the Declaration of Independence the sheet anchor of American republicanism. A sheet anchor is the toughest anchor a ship has. That's what a ship puts down in a storm. And the storm was beginning. So Lincoln calls the Declaration our sheet anchor. In 1859, he said the Declaration gave the axioms and definitions of a free society. Uh, this was uh, in response to an invitation to come to Boston to celebrate Jefferson's birthday. Uh, Lincoln couldn't go, but he, he, he sent a letter that he had clearly labored over, and it was a, a paean to Jefferson. He said, all honor to Jefferson, who had the coolness on the forecast to insert into a merely revolutionary document a principle which should be valid for all times and all ages. And then, of course, his final, his final ringing of this chime is what I started with, the, the Gettysburg Address, where he looks back fourscore and seven years ago uh, to the Declaration, and he says that this is the proposition uh, to which this country is dedicated. Now, the Gettysburg Address and the other speeches that day were given to dedicate a cemetery. And there were a lot of cemeteries filled during the Civil War. Uh, Lincoln was not a warrior president. He had served in the Black Hawk War, which was uh, an Indian war uh, when he was a young man. He 
didn't see any action, but he had seen some men who'd been scalped. Uh, he knew that his own grandfather, Abraham Lincoln, also Abraham Lincoln, uh, had been saved from an Indian attack uh, when he was a little boy. An Indian had uh, shot, had um, uh, rather had shot and killed Abraham Lincoln, and and his son Thomas, Lincoln's father, was saved by a brother who shot the Indian and and rescued him from the field where this uh, violent encounter had happened. Uh, and also in Lincoln's life, he'd lost a mother. Uh, a sister and a sweetheart to diseases. And these were, these were common losses in early 19th century America. But the Civil War was uncommon. And even a man who was not in arms himself could not uh, be insulated from it. Uh, Elmer Ellsworth was uh, one of Lincoln's law students. Uh, he'd read law in Lincoln's office He'd accompanied Lincoln on his train trip to his first inauguration. Uh, and Ellsworth was in the army, and he was killed uh, in a Union um, operation to take the city of Alexandria from rebels uh, early in the spring of 1861. At the end of 1861, Edward Baker was an old friend of Lincoln's from Illinois politics. Lincoln had named one of his sons after him. He was killed at the Battle of Ball's Bluff. Uh, Lincoln was described at the funeral as weeping like a child. Also in 1861, a man named William McCullough asked Lincoln for his help to get in an Illinois regiment. Uh, McCullough had been a court clerk in Bloomington, Illinois, on the circuit that Lincoln traveled. And the reason he needed the president's help was that McCullough was 50 years old and he'd lost an arm in a farming accident. But Lincoln intervened for him. He got in his regiment, he became a colonel, and in 1862 he was killed in northern Mississippi in the run-up uh, to the siege of Vicksburg. Uh, Lincoln also saw a lot of wounded. Uh, Noah Brooks, who was a reporter who'd known him in Illinois, then moved to California, came back to Washington to cover the war for the Sacramento Union. Uh, he accompanied Lincoln on uh, many visits to hospitals that the president made with the first lady. And on one of these visits, Lincoln and Brooks were uh, going down the line of beds, and ahead of them was a charitable woman who was handing out uh, literature for the wounded soldiers. And one man uh, takes the pamphlet that she hands him, and he looks at it, and he sets it down laughing. And when Lincoln and Brooks uh, come up to the man, Lincoln says, well, that woman, you know, she meant well. It probably wasn't nice to laugh at her. And the soldier says, well, uh, she's given me a pamphlet on the sin of dancing, and both my legs have been shot off. And, you know, this has the shape of a joke. But the joke was on the president, and also on the legless soldier, of course. So Lincoln is seeing this in people that he knows, he sees it in visits that he makes. And as commander-in-chief, of course, he is getting all the casualty reports. They are all being funneled to him. And it's horror after horror. Uh, the Battle of Gettysburg is two years into the war. It's about the length of the Mexican War and the War of 1812, the other war, wars of the 19th century. Uh, we talk of it now as the turning point in the war, and certainly 
Lincoln hoped it was, but still the war went on. And the problem for Lincoln, the particular problem for Lincoln, and it was related uh, to his logic. He had a very uh, logical cast to his mind. He, he was also a determinist. Um, the, the Baptist church that his family belonged to believed in predestination. And uh, Lincoln, you know, he left the church, but he kept the belief. He kept that belief. One of the little phrases he had was that the motive was born before the man. So even before you're born, the motives of all your actions are determined because every act has a cause and that cause also had a cause and so on back and back and back. So everybody is uh, cast into a web of determination and by the Civil War you're trapped in such a web. So Lincoln uh, thinks to himself and he, he makes a note of this and he talks about it with a couple people uh, he thinks to himself, God rules the world. Remember, Paine was never an atheist. He always believed in God, and so did Lincoln. But God rules the world. God rules everything. And yet, the war happens, and the war continues. God could have stopped it from happening. He could stop it in any moment, yet it still goes on. Uh, both sides pray to him. They both can't be answered. Maybe neither side is being answered. What does God want in continuing this war? And Lincoln beats his head against this problem for years. And then his solution, or his best attempt at a solution, is revealed in his second inaugural address in March of 1865. Uh, the war is not over yet, but it looks as if it's ending. And here's what he tells Americans in this state paper. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which, in the providence of God, must needs come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? If God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondmen's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now this is a very punitive father, uh, more punitive than Thomas Lincoln ever was. Uh, you'll also notice that the Founding Fathers have disappeared from this speech. Uh, the Gettysburg Address said four score and seven years ago, going back to 1776. But the Second Inaugural says 250 years of unrequited toil. 1865 minus 250 takes you back to Jamestown, which was the first American colony, the first colony uh, to accept slaves from Africa. 
So the founding fathers have become a dimensionless point in 250 years of our experience with slavery. And because of that, William McCullough and Elmer Ellsworth and Edward Baker and the young man whose legs were blown off and so many other people who never owned a slave, most of the Southern soldiers did not own slaves, or never saw a slave. You know, not a lot of slaves in Wisconsin. But they have to die by thousands. You can see in this speech how far Lincoln has traveled from Paine. Paine was revolted by the notion uh, that God would accept uh, the sacrifice of his son as a payment for men's sins. But Lincoln is now saying that God requires uh, the deaths of Americans to pay for the national sin of slavery. But that's not where the second inaugural ends. There's a last paragraph, a last sentence. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. And when I, uh, when I came to uh, write about that, I noticed that all those verbs and all those verbal phrases are two-syllable verbs. Strive on, finish, bind up, care for, do all, achieve, cherish. And I thought, it's like walking. It's as simple as walking. It's as hard as walking after you've walked so long and there's so far still to go. And this is what Lincoln gave to America a month before he died. Uh, this is what he gives to us now, strive on, do all, achieve. Thanks very much, I'll take your questions. Now, you should, uh, you should know that to ask a question, uh, there are microphones in the aisles. And uh, so come up to a microphone, um, state your name, and uh, remember, please only ask one question, and uh, uh, no speeches with rising inflections. <laughs> you know, if you read the Lincoln-Douglas debates, I mean, audiences were, were ruder then. I mean, they, they'd shout stuff out. They'd say, like, hit him, hit him again. Or, you know, that's the doctrine. Or, or sometimes uh, Stephen Douglas's supporters would say, white man, white man, he's a disgrace to white people. Um, but, but we have to be a little more, a little more polite than that. So um, uh, which, uh, which side do you want me to uh, start on? Okay, you, sir. Thank you. I'm Jim Pisanich. I'm a docent here. Um, you, Lincoln got his hatred of, of slavery from his father, and as you mentioned, other inspiration from Jefferson and Washington. How did he uh, coincide his hatred of, of slavery with their belief in slavery? Well, certainly his father, his father may be a source of it. Uh, that is probably one of the reasons that he left Kentucky. I mean, the two reasons are troubles with land titles, because surveying was just uh, 
you know, it was just a mess. There were conflicting surveys, and, and Thomas Lincoln had, had, had had to go to court because of rival claims. And he just, he wanted to get to the old Northwest Territory because the federal government had surveyed that and guaranteed the surveys. Um, also, uh, there's also the, I think, the, the possibility that he didn't want to compete with farmers who had slaves. I mean, he was a small farmer. These were bigger farmers. Who needs that? Uh, so that, that was an incentive for him to leave. Um, I noticed that in one of, one of Lincoln's books, one of his primers, it was called the Kentucky Primer. Uh, and one of the questions that the kids were given is, uh, who has more cause to complain, the Indian or the slave? You know, this is a book written in 1790, and it's a, you know, it's a kind of academic exercise for school kids, but, uh, uh, but there it was. And, and then, of course, people, Lincoln took two trips to New Orleans. It was the only place in the Deep South he ever went uh, when he was a, uh, an older uh, teenager. And, and people have speculated, well, what did he see there? I mean, New Orleans is, you know, lots of black people, free black people, slaves, slave markets, slaves being sold, slaves being inspected. You know, how's the body on that youngin? You know, and is, was that, some people would be thrilled by that. I mean, uh, we, we have some accounts that Lincoln was appalled. Um, but there are problems with those accounts. One is third hand, another is by one of his cousins who didn't actually get to New Orleans, he stopped in St. Louis. So Lincoln might have told him this later, but, but he didn't um, see it firsthand. But so uh, with, with the founding fathers, who, those who were slave owners, who include Washington and Jefferson, uh, Lincoln always said uh, that they found slavery existing in the country in which they were born. And the policy that they wished to follow was what we would now call containment. That's my word, that wasn't Lincoln's word. But he said they cut off its expansion in one direction by forbidding it in the Northwest Territory. And they cut off its supply in the other by stipulating in the Constitution that the slave trade could be ended in 1808. And indeed it was. Um, he also uh, made the point that although the Constitution gives guarantees to slavery, uh, it says that fugitive slaves should be returned to their owners who, who come to seek them, uh, and it counts slaves in the apportionment of the House of Representatives. But it never uses the word slave or slaves or slavery. And Lincoln would have read uh, Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention because they were published uh, in 1840, uh, and there was a set of them in the, in the Springfield, in the State Library in Springfield. And, and there Madison says, Madison's a slave owner, and Madison says that, you know, we should not, um, we should not use this language in the Constitution. You know, and Lincoln will later say, so that uh, when slavery has disappeared, there should be no sign that it ever existed in the great charter of our liberties. So this is, um, this is Lincoln's view of the Founding Fathers, uh, that they hoped it would wither away, that they took certain concrete steps to cause it ultimately to wither away, uh, that America had strayed from this program, 
America had let it expand, you know, across the southwest. Uh, and uh, in 1854, with the repeal of the Missouri Compromise, there's the possibility that it could go into Kansas and Nebraska. And this is what, what really changes Lincoln's life and changes American uh, uh, politics. But, but he is saying that um, this was their program. I'm getting back to it. So this is how he uh, try, tries to reconcile that thorny point. Yes. Oops. Oh. What's the name of the sweetheart that he lost to the disease? Uh, his first uh, sweetheart was Anne Rutledge. Anne Rutledge. And, you know, I have to say there's a civil war over every point of Lincoln biography. <laughs> and um, Anne Rutledge is one of the contended, contending subjects. I mean, there are, there are Lincoln scholars who said, oh, no, 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 he, you know, there, there was nothing there. I mean, and, and their evidence is um, people who knew Lincoln then, like half of them say, oh, he was really torn up by this. And then there are half of them who say, ah, you know, he didn't, he didn't seem to be affected. I didn't see anything. But I think that's a stupid reason. You know, people don't show everyone what they think. Do you show everyone you know what you think? I mean, you show the people who are closest to you. Also, some people are just dumb. I mean, they wouldn't notice if it's <laughs> right. No, yeah, I didn't see anything. But, but, but numbers of people said, you know, oh, he was, he was distressed. We had to hide the razors. He talked about killing himself. And it seems like the thing, one thing I learned in writing this book, I, I mean, I knew Lincoln was melancholy. All you have to do is look at a picture and you can tell that. But I, I did not, I was not aware of the depths of his depression. This was a serious, lifelong uh, curse. Uh, that he bore. And after Anne Rutledge uh, dies, the thought that torments him is that rain will fall on her grave. Now, now, Illinois was having the wettest summer then on record. It had rained for four and a half straight months. But that's a very depressive thought because rain falls everywhere. It falls on us, it falls on houses, it falls on graves. You can't stop it. But if you're depressed, you think, it's falling on me. It's falling on me. It's falling on mine. I can't stand it. So that's, that's the name of the young woman. And uh, that's what I believe um, he experienced. Yes, sir. Um, my name is Norman Arnoff, and I'm a member of the Abraham Lincoln Association. Um, my question to you is, which has the greatest pull on Abraham Lincoln's thought and conduct, the Declaration of Independence or the United States Constitution? Well, Lincoln writes an interesting memo to himself uh, when he's president-elect. And uh, he never used these exact words in a speech, but it's sometimes he would jot down thoughts and he might incorporate them later or he, he would just leave them there. But in this particular thought, he, he uses a biblical uh, phrase um, that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. Uh, and ironically, it had just been used in a letter to him by his old friend Alexander Stevens. 
uh, his colleague from his one term in Congress, a Whig from Georgia, who was urging Lincoln to condemn John Brown's raid, which had happened the year before. And Stevens up, would become the vice president of the Confederacy, but up to the last minute he was a Unionist. And he's looking for Lincoln to like make some gesture to the South, and he says, a word uh, fitly spoken by you now would be like apples of gold and pictures of silver. Uh, Lincoln had already read that. He didn't need Stevens to instruct him in the Bible, but there it is in his mind. And so he's later on when he's writing to himself, he uses this phrase again, and he says, that the Declaration is the apple of gold, the Constitution is the picture of silver. Now, um, the most eminent Lincoln scholar of the last 60 years is Harry Jaffa. And, and he has used this phrase over and over again to, to say that the Declaration is more important to Lincoln than the Constitution. And certainly gold is more valuable than silver. I mean, it is. But the, the, the metaphor, it's jewelry. You know, Robert Alter, the Hebrew scholar and translator, he says, this is pictures of silver, it means jewelry, like a jewel frame. So the picture of silver, it protects the apple of gold. You know, it preserves it, it guards it. That's how we, we keep it. And indeed, Lincoln says in this note, uh, so let neither be changed or altered. You know, and he's the man who, you know, in his self-presentation, he says, I'm the man who holds to both of these things. You know, there's some people who want to chuck the Declaration. Um, they either, well, they either um, openly disdain it or they reinterpret it. You know, Stephen Douglas says, well, all men are created equal. It didn't mean all men, it meant all white men. It doesn't mean Negroes, it doesn't mean savage Indians, it doesn't mean Fijians, it doesn't mean Malays. That's what Stephen Douglas said. And Lincoln Douglas said, no, men means men. I mean, Jefferson knew what he was saying. The Continental Congress knew what they were signing off on. Men means men. Then he says there are also people who hate the Constitution. This would be abolitionists. Uh, William Lloyd Garrison had burned it. He said it, it, it's a deal with the devil and with hell because of the guarantees that it gives slavery. And Lincoln always says, I'm the man uh, who stands with both. So um, in answer to your question, yes, the Declaration is more important, but they're equally important. You know, and Lincoln would never, you know, would never untangle them or distangle them. That's what he'd tell you. I, mean, I would, would go with the uh, Lyceneum address and the rule of law. Well, you know, Lincoln, um, Lincoln puts a lot out there, but I, but I think he's... Um, uh, he, he is the one who is going to uh, uphold both of them. Uh, yes, sir. How is Lincoln eligible and successful as a president without a real education? Well, he was self-educated. I mean, he, you know, he went to these five one-room schoolhouses, uh, two in Kentucky before he was seven, and then three more in Indiana. Um, there were lots of people who were better read than he was. I mean, people in his own cabinet. I mean, I'm sure uh, William Seward was much better read than Abraham Lincoln, much more widely read. Lincoln loved Shakespeare. He never read all his plays. But, you know, what Lincoln read, he read pretty seriously. <laughs> he read pretty deeply. So, um, you know, Lincoln is, he, he is an autodidact. Uh, he teaches himself. Uh, one of his law partners, his second 
a law partner, um, Stephen Logan, I think the first name was Stephen, he said Lincoln's general knowledge of the law was never very great. But uh, William Herndon, his third law partner, said he always dug up the root. You know, if there was any case, he would, he would just, he would master all the details, he would master all the precedents for that case. That's the way his mind works. I mean, he fastens on something and he bores in. And the, the most moving testimony to that, um, his mother died when he was nine, then his father married again. Uh, the stepmother was a remarkable woman. She knew she had a remarkable stepson. Her name was Sarah Bush Lincoln. And she was interviewed as an old lady by uh, Lincoln's last law partner, William Herndon, who did what we would now call an oral history. And, uh, you know, he, he knew that this, this friend of his was a remarkable man, and he studied him, he observed him. And then after he was killed, he decided to write a biography, and he started interviewing people, and then he realized there's stuff I never heard about, I mean, stuff I was never aware of. And he did dozens of interviews with people who knew him well, people who knew him a little, smart people, stupid people, I mean, just all sorts of people. It's amazing work. But, but maybe the most moving one is he looks up Sarah Bush Lincoln, who's this old lady, and her husband's dead, her son has just been killed. Uh, he goes to meet her, and he thinks, at first he thinks they're having dinner, he thinks it's too late. I mean, she's, you know, she's, she's gone. I won't be able to get anything. But he, you know, he starts talking about the old days, he warms her up, and then she gives this terrific interview and she says, when Lincoln was a boy, and he didn't understand anything, he had to ask, you know, what did this mean? What were these people talking about? And then he would write it down, and he would rephrase it, and he'd keep doing it until he had it fixed in his mind. And then he'd, if he was writing it on a piece of wood, he'd shave it off so he had a clean piece again. But he had to, like, figure things out get them fixed in his mind. And, and that's the way he continued to educate himself. Yes, ma'am. Well, thank you. Um, I'm Jane McCall Politi. And I was just wondering if you turned up any literature about Newton Bateman. He was my great-great-grandfather and a friend of Abraham Lincoln's. They no, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but look, there are... Um, I mean, look in the indexes of Lincoln biographies. I mean, you oh. know, Michael Burlingame has a, has a two-volume. It's huge. Um, look at the collected Lincoln papers, uh, which are online. I mean, there, there ought to be a way uh, of chasing oh. this down. Oh, oh, I have seen. He was uh, dependent of public schools, uh, director of public schools in Springfield. And right. Well, that's my best advice to how to. And he shared the same law the with Abraham Lincoln. Anyway, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, yes, sir. Can I ask you a what-if question based upon your studies of Lincoln? What if he had not been assassinated, and he stayed as president, and Johnson had not become president, uh, with the what? South and the Reconstruction? What do you say would have been the situation? Well, Johnson was a bad pick, wasn't he? Um, and what's kind of astonishing about that is two presidents had died already, and Lincoln had supported both of them. 
You know, Harrison uh, died in 1841, and Zachary Taylor uh, died in 1850, and they were both Whigs. Lincoln had campaigned for both men. And Harrison's vice president, John Tyler, undid all of Harrison's policies. You know, he was not a Whig. He was a Democrat who'd been put on the ticket to balance it, and he just kicked over everything. And this was something every ex-Whig remembered. So Lincoln's choice of Johnson is, is odd. I, I know why he did it. He wanted a Union Democrat. Uh, he didn't think he was going to win his re-election. He thought it was a very, very dicey uh, thing. And he's looking for a way to broaden uh, the ticket, broaden his base. And Johnson was a, was a brave man. He was a patriotic man. Uh, he was the only Southern senator to stay loyal. But he was just... Um, just boiling with resentments, uh, a small man in a lot of ways. Uh, the, the fact of Lincoln's murder is what makes the comparison between Washington and Lincoln ultimately impossible, because Lincoln's work was half done. It would be as if a diehard Tory had shot Washington after he'd returned his commission to Congress in Annapolis in 1783. And he still would have been the hero of the revolution, uh, the man who'd won the war, the man who had never seized power during the war. But his whole presidency would have been lost to us. And, um, you know, Lincoln would have had a hellacious term. I mean, his first term, how could it be worse than his first term? But it would have, you know, it would have been, it would have been extremely stressful. Uh, the only thing I can say is that Lincoln was a very good politician. He was very good at keeping the Republican Party together, uh, even Republicans who disliked him, which many of them did. Uh, people thought he was stupid. People thought he was too conservative. Uh, Benjamin Wade called him white trash. Uh, you know, there was just a lot of resentment. And, oh, I could have done this all yesterday. You know, why did he take so long, this kind of thing. But, and yet, Lincoln um, was never, there was never a successful, successful rebellion in Republican ranks against him. Uh, he was masterful at uh, dividing and conquering among his rivals. Uh, he had genuine friendships with, with people who disagreed with him. Uh, the last speech he gives uh, both urges that the southern states participate in the ratification of the 13th Amendment and that uh, certain black people be allowed to vote. So he's addressing both the free men and the former rebels uh, in a very uh, far-sighted and magnanimous spirit. Um, Booth did a lot. Never underestimate John Wilkes Booth. Uh, he did far more than Lee and Jackson. I mean, he struck the blow. Is that it? Okay. On that grim note. <laughs> <laughs>